From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up, the left remains worked up over the recent draft report by the Commission on Unalienable Rights. The commission was formed last year by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo as what he had uh, seen and experienced since becoming the 70th United States Secretary of State suggested it was time for an informed review of the role of human rights in our foreign policy so that our foreign policy will serve American interest and reflect American values. One of the major criticisms of the report is the prioritization of religious freedom as a foreign policy priority. And yet, because the Trump administration has made religious freedom the top foreign policy objective in this administration, the result has been men, women, and children are experiencing freedom, not just religious freedom, but political freedoms as well. Now, you might be tempted to ask, Why is promoting religious freedom in our foreign policy important? Why should we care? First, as Christians, we not only recognize, but also we must defend the right of every person to choose to follow God or not. Of course, we want them to choose to follow God, and we want the freedom to encourage him to make that choice. But from a public policy standpoint, there is a growing body of research that reveals that when religious freedom is present... There is greater economic freedom and greater social stability, which ultimately means less of a national security issue for the U.S. Now, case in point is the African country of Sudan. After more than 75 years of colonial rule by Britain and others, Sudan became an independent country back in 1956. Now, at the time, northern Sudan was predominantly Muslim, and southern Sudan was steeped in African cultural traditions as well as some Christian influence. When leaders wanted to unify the nation by forcefully applying Islamic laws and culture onto the entire country, a civil war between the northern leaders seeking this unification and those who were opposed to it, mostly in the south, resulted uh, in a, a war that lasted from 1955 to 1972. Now, following a short-lived agreement that unified the three southern Sudanese provinces and allowed them autonomy, hostilities then resumed again in 1983. The Muslim Brotherhood exerted greater influence, increasing the presence of Sharia law. Plagued by political, economic, and social instability, the government was overthrown by a revolutionary command council for national salvation led by Lieutenant General Omar al-Bashir resulting in Sudan being under a harsh and punitive Islamist government for the last three decades. But all of that changed a little over a year ago. And while far from being a bastion of freedom, the country of 41 million people is experiencing historic changes, changes that include religious and political freedom. Now, my first encounter with the leadership of Sudan was in 2014 when I became involved in the case of Miriam Ibrahim, a young Sudanese mother who was convicted of apostasy and then sentenced to die. Miriam was imprisoned in Khartoum along with her 18-month-old son. She was also pregnant with her second child at the time, which she would eventually give birth to in the prison while chained to the floor. International outcry and effective advocacy of several, including those who will join us today, led to her freedom. Now, under the new Sudanese transitional government led by Prime Minister Hamdok, whom I met with in Sudan earlier this year, they just repealed that apostasy law, 
a major development in the pursuit of religious freedom for the Sudanese people. Marian Ibrahim will join us later to reflect on this monumental change. Also a champion for Miriam and for the persecuted everywhere, former Virginia Congressman Frank Wolf, who led the first congressional delegation to war-torn Defor, awakening the world to the reality of genocide in Sudan. Congressman Wolf will help bring perspective to the changes in Sudan and why we should take hope that it can happen elsewhere. We'll also be joined by Faith McDonald who has been an advocate for the persecuted in Sudan for decades. And finally, Travis Weber and Ariel Del Turco will be in studio for a look at how these apostasy laws are being used in about a dozen and a half countries to restrict religious freedom and how we might encourage their repeal. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you miss anything on your way home, you can find it all later right there at TonyPerkins.com. Well, joining us now, former Congressman Frank Wolf from Virginia. He was the author of the 1998 U.S. International Religious Freedom Act, and he has worked for decades to advance religious freedom overseas, including in the country of Sudan. Congressman, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, thank you, Tony. Good to be with you, and I want to thank you. I want to thank FRC, and I want to thank your supporters for the good work that you guys do. You really make a big difference. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that, and Looking at Sudan and these recent developments with the repeal of the apostasy law, which has been used to suppress religious minorities, I mean, you you were one of the first focused on this. You've been to Sudan multiple times. I mean, give us a sense of the development there. How significant is what we see happening in Sudan? It is very, it is very, very significant. My first trip was in January of 1989, and of course, you know, over a million, some say two million people died in the north-south conflict. Uh, uh, Don't forget, too, Tarabi, who was kind of a big operative in Sudan at that time, a cartoon, he invited bin Laden to live in Sudan. Osama bin Laden lived in Sudan for five years five five years and more people were killed in the north south battle uh, in uh, that area than killed in bosnia somalia kosovo and rwanda combined so uh it has been a dramatic dramatic change you've had terrorism you've had ghost houses uh the, the conditions in khartoum were beyond imagination and of course you know the largest embassy if you've been there is the Chinese embassy. The Chinese were all over the place giving arms and aid and equipment. And uh, so it's come from that situation until really, uh, and I want to give a lot of credit to George W. Bush, President Bush, and also uh, John Danforth, the special envoy. When President Bush appointed Danforth in 2001, the conditions were horrible. It was beyond imagination. Going to Khartoum was like, going back a hundred hundred years and Bashir was an evil person. As you know, Bashir became an indicted war criminal. Indicted and and the UN wanted to take action and many other countries did and so many people died and I think as a result of that and uh, you now have what they just did with regards to blasphemy law, you have conditions changing and you have a new country. You have the country of Southern Sudan. So it, it is just so unbelievable to change all for the good so congressman wolf how difficult was it to get 
policymakers to focus on Sudan and what was unfolding there? Well, it was impossible. I mean, we went there in, in 89. I remember being in Kenya, and I said, I want to go in, and uh, our embassy wouldn't let me go go in. So I jumped on a private plane uh, with a guy named Eagle Hagen, who was a special forces for the Norwegian People's Aid. And people didn't want to go, didn't want you to be there. It, it was just a different, it was a lawless place. And Christians were being slaughtered. I mean, the number of people who died in battle, the number of people who died in hunger, the uh, the, uh, the poverty, the no health care. And so nobody wanted to, to deal with that. I would go back, back and forth as former Senator Humphrey from New Hampshire was very, very active. Uh, Congressman Payne, who since died, uh, a Democrat from New Jersey, was very active. There was a handful that kind of stayed with it. But I really want to, again, John Danforth, who became the special envoy, was appointed by President Bush in 2001, a couple of days before 9-11. The work that the Bush administration did with John Danforth really turned everything. And I had the honor to be at the signing ceremony. Uh, Bashir was there. It was amazing in 2005 in Kenya, where the South got its independence. So, but nobody wanted to talk about it. And uh, the genocide, of course, as you know, in Darfur, genocide came about, about 200, 300,000 people died. So it was a hard thing to get people to be to be interested in. So now with uh, this uh, new transitional government, which was a combination of uh, obviously international uh, focus on Sudan, but you know, it was the people of Sudan that rose up and, and said enough is enough after three decades of Islamic government. Um, is, is this something we could see replicated elsewhere around the world? Well, I think you could. Uh, I mean, believe me, uh, nobody in 1985 when I went to Romania thought that Ceausescu would fall when you'd have a democracy coming. And so the answer is yes, if you keep hitting it over and over and over and over. And this was a bipartisan issue. There were many Democrats, as I said, former Congressman Capuano from Massachusetts, uh, Don Payne. And so, yes, you can. What happens is America gets very impatient. We, we get kind of, we just kind of move on to the next issue. But yes, if you stay with it and persist and also have the political leadership and also people like like you, I mean, I know the work that you did with the Iran people and the outside groups that cared. Then you can really make make a difference. Sudan was almost the beginning of this whole. It's really where I kind of got a lot of interest in the area international religious freedom. And then you had uh, you had Chuck Colson, you had uh, the Catholic Church, you had many other groups. So the answer is yes. If you stay with it, you can make a tremendous difference. But you need the political leadership to be in sync with what's taking place by the NGOs and groups like yours. You're listening to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins, Congressman Frank Wolf, former Congressman of Virginia, my guest. Congressman, you, you mentioned Miriam Ibrahim. You worked very closely with us to have uh, hearings back when she was in prison to draw attention to her situation. But I remember after she was released, she was here in the United States, you and I were having a conversation and and you told me that uh, you know I needed to we needed to make religious freedom international religious freedom a, a priority in the 2016 election, which we ultimately did. And as a result, I think we see this administration focusing very heavily on religious freedom. How 
important of a role has that played in changing the landscape global, globally? Oh, big time. Uh, and again, you're right. The Trump administration on the issue of religious freedom, international religious freedom, has done a great, a great, great job. There are no countries, and I know somebody will find where there is, there's no country that I know where there's international, where there's domestic religious freedom, where people can worship and not worship, depending on whatever their own views are, that we are at war at, that we are in conflict with. You may remember the words that uh, President Reagan said. He said the words in the Constitution and Declaration of Independence were a covenant with the people, not only in Philadelphia in 1776 and 1787, but with the entire world. Wherever there is religious freedom, we are not at war with the people. Where there is not religious freedom, I mean, just look at, I mean, China, the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, the Falun Gong, the Buddhist, right. Uyghurs taken away in concentration camps, we are, we are in conflict with them. So, it is the fundamental core, and in many respects, for the longest period of time, I mean, the Clinton administration didn't think that we should make this a priority. They thought this was a mistake. And we look at the speech that Madeleine Albright gave at Catholic University, where she opposed our, our bill. But where there's religious freedom, you generally are at peace. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Congressman Frank Wolf, we're out of time. Uh, obviously, I want to continue this conversation. We're going to have to do that on another occasion because I think there's some parallels with what's happening in Nigeria, even now, that you've brought, brought, brought attention to. And we'll save that conversation for another day. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tony. God bless you. Bye now. Folks, don't go away. We're coming back with more of this special edition of Washington Watch right on the other side of the break. Do Christians have a biblical obligation to participate in government? Do Christians have a duty to vote? And if so, what principles should inform them while casting their ballots? How should pastors think about politics, and how can they shepherd their congregations well during an election season? The gospel of Jesus Christ has implications for all areas of our life, including politics. Christians must be prepared to grapple with the moral issues of our day, the reality of our two-party system, and follow our Christian convictions to their logical end by voting for candidates that support clear biblical values. Family Research Council has partnered with 21 state family policy councils for a new edition of Biblical Principles for Political Engagement. This booklet provides biblical wisdom and clear answers to pivotal questions to help you navigate the political landscape. This publication exists to facilitate careful thinking about issues and encourage God-honoring political engagement that filters all issues and candidates through a biblical worldview. To read the full publication, visit frc.org slash engage. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Hey, Matt. 
This is Washington Watch, and I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you happen to be on uh, Twitter, it is uh, at T. Perkins or Parlor at T. Perkins. All right, um, continuing today, our focus on uh, Sudan, the changes that have taken place. Uh, here to talk more about the persecuted church in Sudan is Faith McDonald. Uh, she is director of Religious Liberty Programs and of the Church Alliance for a New Sudan for the Institute of Religion and Democracy. She has been working for the persecuted church in Sudan and other African nations since 1993. She's been at this for a while. She has organized uh, rallies and vigils for Sudan in front of the White House. In fact, she organized one for uh, Miriam Ibrahim, who we're going to hear from uh, a little bit later in the program. Uh, I participated in that. She's held... Uh, Rallies at the State Department, the Canadian Embassy, and the Sudanese Embassy. She's drafted legislation on religious persecution for the Episcopal Church and for the United States Congress. And uh, she's been to Sudan. She's cultivated uh, rich and strong relationships with uh, believers there. And she joins us now. Faith, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Tony. Great to be with you. Uh, well, Faith, let me just start with, you know, we're focusing on, on Sudan. After three decades mm-hmm. of being under an Islamic government, Islamist government, um, we're seeing rays of hope, the apostasy laws being repealed. What do you make of the developments in Sudan as it pertains to persecuted Christians? Well, Tony, we thank God for every step in the right direction. And, you know, you and I both know that people have been praying about this for many years. Um, so I'm happy about that. I'm always cautious. I remember a book by the former uh, vice president of Sudan at a time when there was a piece before, um, a dear man, um, uh, Abel Alir, who wrote a book called Sudan, Too Many Agreements Dishonored. So I always, you know, want to make sure that we don't get ahead of ourselves as, as in foreign policy as the U.S. government, thinking that everything is just peachy now and changing all of the uh, the, the, the put things we put into place to keep Sudan from committing atrocities. Um, I think the Christians in Sudan right now are very happy that things are changing, especially the end of the apostasy law, which is really remarkable, um, as well as the end of public flogging and of uh, female uh, genital mutilation. But uh, they still have a ways to go. Um, And I did hear one thing today which caused me some concern was that with the uh, aid for the virus, that there are Christians in Sudan who are being told that they have to convert to Islam before they get the the food aid that is supposed to be going to everyone in Sudan. So I don't know if that's a local thing, and we're going to just have to start watching out for Sudan having local governments that don't like what the civilian government is doing, you know? Yeah, there's no question that that is going to be a a, a challenge. I mean, we see that in other countries. We see that, I've seen that in Egypt as we've, uh, under El-Sisi, where they've tried to to move to more... yeah, I would say more religious freedom, but when you get to some of the remote parts of Egypt, uh, the word hadn't quite gotten there yet. And I think uh, Sudan, yeah. uh, very fragile infrastructure, 
there's going to be some ongoing challenges. You're right to urge caution. But I think faith from the standpoint of your advocacy and the work that you have done, you know, for, for decades, this has to be encouraging and should encourage others that, you know, if we do not lose heart, if we'll just continue that we will reap if we don't lose heart. Amen. Amen. It is. It's very encouraging. And frankly, I never expected to see this. You know, I, I, I didn't know what would ever happen, but, um, when, when the people started to, to rise up really, you know, and, and after many years of, of the other people, the marginalized people groups, the Nuba and the Darfurians and the Bija, um, stand, trying to stand up for their rights and, and many people dying for those rights, um, then to be joined by the people in the center of the country with these protests, um, it was just, it, it, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. So, um, uh, yeah, we, we, we need to keep praying though. I think that the civilian part of this government is great. Um, actually the, uh, the Minister of Justice who made a lot of these changes used to demonstrate on the streets of DC <laughs> with me for Darfur. So, um, we, we, we see that happening and, uh, yet the military we have to watch out for and I'm hoping that as the transition takes place that we can see an, an end to, um, this, this dual kind of, uh, reign and, and have a, a, a complete civilian government. Right. Um, and also they need to watch out for some of the radical, uh, imams who are not happy with these changes. Right. Um, I heard about one who self exiled to Turkey and I thought, well, he, he's in the right place now. So I'm it, sure it is, loves him. it is, uh, it, it is, uh, far from stable. In fact, uh, was when I was in Sudan uh, earlier this year. In fact, just a couple of weeks, about a week after I left, there was an attempt mm. on the life of the prime minister, whom we had been with, oh. um, because there are some who are not happy about this. But uh, Faith, before we run, run out of time in this segment, uh, from a standpoint of the church in America, Christians, believers, our listeners, mm-hmm. what should they and can they be doing right now, not only as it pertains to Sudan, but other places around the world where believers are being persecuted? Oh, definitely pray, get to know as much as they can. Yeah, another place where we really need the body of Christ to stand up for their brothers and sisters is Nigeria. The Christians in Nigeria are are under what is really a genocidal attack. Um, so people need to, to learn more. They need to pray. They need to speak out. Um, we're really pushing because there are some uh, narratives that say that the, the, the problem in Nigeria is just a clash between herdsmen and farmers. Right. But this is a deliberate attack on the Christians. Um, and also to, to help support as much as they can. Um, you know, like in Sudan, uh, we have precious people in the Nuba Mountains who for years had to hide in caves from the, the, the bombings that were going on. Now that that's not happening, um, they can get back to, to life. But it would be great to, to have some support, especially when the uh, this virus pandemic is going right, on. Right, right. Faith, thanks so much. we got to leave it there. We're up against a break. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Tony. God bless you. All right. Folks, don't go away. Miriam Ibrahim 
The Sudanese mother who was imprisoned in Sudan joins us next. Don't go away. This is Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, today, uh, focused on the issue of Sudan, uh, because it it's important when you look at our foreign policy and what's happening under this administration in terms of prioritizing religious freedom, that it's having an effect. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the program, back in 2014, I became aware of a young Sudanese Christian mother who had been imprisoned along with her son, and at the time, she was uh, six months pregnant. She was convicted of apostasy and sentenced to die. Well, because of some effective advocacy of uh, men like uh, Congressman Frank Wolf, you heard uh, heard from earlier, and also uh, former Congressman Mark Meadows, who's now the chief of staff, the president, who worked very closely with me on this case. Uh, Miriam was eventually freed, and she is now living in the United States, and she joins us by phone. Miriam, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. I really appreciate the effort you had in my case, and we are continuous working on that. And I know you, you, you are an advocate now for others who are suffering uh, a similar um, persecution that you did. But I, I want to ask you, Mary, when you look back and, and you saw just recently where Sudan repealed the apostasy law, the very law from which, by which you were convicted and sentenced to die, uh, are you encouraged by what you see happening in Sudan? going really well in a good direction and um, but let me tell you this I was convicted of apostasy but and this is good news to know that apostasy law has been abolished but um, I've been on a um, Zoom meeting uh, discussion a couple of days ago with Nasreddin um, uh, Delpari the Sudanese um Minister of Justice, mm-hmm. one of the questions that have been asked, and this is related to my case, and this is very important, people need to know this, and especially you, in the term of advocacy. One of the questions is been asked, where is the woman from this, and where is like family law? This is the, one of the issues that we need to discuss, and we need to highlight these issues, and well, Sudan is moving forward with the legal reform, and new laws and all this um, progress. So my case, I, was, I wasn't converted. I wasn't converted. My case related to family law was still going uh, applied in Sudan. So <laughs> the question for the Minister of Justice is, what is his opinion of marriage between Christian and Muslim? He said this is, will go back to religious leaders and the other members in the traditional government. He mm-hmm. won't make a decision on that. This is what's my biggest concern. So for my case, yes, it is absolutely wonderful news to know that a policy law has been a policy, but it's still the things that affect women and children and Christians right. in Sudan. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a part of family law, you know. 
a lot a lot of work yet to be done a lot of work but we are going in a good direction and i really appreciate u.s government yourself effort instead department and office of religious freedom on this so we are going in a good direction right now so i appreciate that so so mary let me ask you this how will the repeal of the apostasy law affect christians in sudan it is affects them in many ways and affects especially the youth and it's a, you know it's it just it's a part as a secretary Pompeo always saying the freedom of religious is a god given right to people you know you you can it's you take the right for for religious you take the right for who to worship and who to follow you take everything from them so this is good, and this is something really um, encouraging yes. for me personally, for many Christian and many non-religious people in Sudan. Right. We have many people who are, don't have religious, like in many areas in Sudan. Because, you know, Sudan is a country of uh, many different cultures and right. language and religious, yeah. Let me ask you one final question before we run out of time. I was recently in Sudan. I went to the prison where you were being held in Khartoum. And when you were there in that prison, did did you, did you, I mean, when you look back on that, are are you amazed at what God did in your situation? Yes, I am. I'm very grateful for that. And let me tell you something, I'm still working and I'm still in contact with many grassroots organizations and civil society leaders in Pakistan, Sudan, even members of the guards in prison. My, our organization is working, advocating and highlighting these issues. And we've been a part of this, all this uh, protest change. I'm working here in close contact, including you say Mark Meadows and Frank Ward, all those like, I have a lot of support here, and I'm very grateful for that, including you, sir, also. So, but as I said, we still have to focus on family law issues. But yes. I mentioned to Muhammad, my lawyer, I said, well, this is really concerning. Like, if now my son, Martin, who spent most of precious toddlerhood age in prison, yeah. he has to go back to Sudan and fall in love with Sudanese Muslim girl. <laughs> And then get married. That means this girl, she, she will say the same thing I did say. Yeah. So this family, when we have new law, new constitution, new constitution, we need to make sure this is no one left behind. Right. We're moving in that direction. Uh, Marion, we got to leave it there. Out of time. Thank you for joining us. Great to talk mm-hmm. with you, and uh, and we rejoice with you, folks. Don't go away. We're back with more after this. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increased pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. 
How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash sexuality. Again, that's frc.org slash sexuality. In today's culture, it can be difficult for men to navigate what it means to be a man and to find clear models of masculinity and manhood. There are many competing ideas out there and even confusion around the basic concepts of gender and sex. Where can boys, young men, husbands, and fathers find a model of manhood, leadership, and strength in today's culture of confusion? This is Tony Perkins inviting you to join me at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference led by men who are seasoned, compassionate leaders who understand the issues of the day. These issues will invest in unpacking our role as defenders, providers, instructors, and battle buddies so that men can have generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Join us at one of our upcoming events in Texas, Louisiana, Florida, or Virginia. Learn more about Stand Courageous and find an event near you at StandCourageous.com. That's StandCourageous.com. StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you uh, missed any of the previous interviews, you can catch it later at uh, TonyPerkins.com. Everything's archived uh, right there. All right, when we look at the issue of uh, Sudan, as we were talking about with, uh, with Miriam, you know, there's still issues. Um, you've got uh, the, 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 the family law and how that's adjudicated, whether it's through Sharia. And so what actually, uh, in my conversations with the prime minister and the transitional government there, they are in many ways trying to extricate the the laws from the Islamic law. Now, this is a country that's had heavily heavy uh, Muslim influence for decades, and for the last three decades it's been ruled by an Islamist government where Sharia law has been applied. Now, Repealing the apostasy law is a major step in the right direction because you got to understand the the use of the apostasy law, how governments use that to not only restrain religious freedom, suppress it, but also other freedoms as well. Now, joining me to uh, to talk about that is some of FRC's own experts on international religious freedom, Travis Weber. He is the FRC's. Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs and the Director of our Center for Religious Liberty and Ariel uh, de Turco, who is the Assistant Director of uh, the Center for Religious Liberty here at the Family Research Council. Travis, Ariel, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Tony. Now, let's talk about first, you know, there are about a dozen and a half other countries then have apostasy laws in place. So uh, let's just start with that. How are these apostasy laws used? What are they, and how are they used? Yeah, so, Tony, these laws uh, punish people who apostatize and convert away from Islam um, across much of the Muslim world, uh, backed by social pressure, the governments use these to deter people from choosing their faith freely 
and uh, will often be used to punish mere allegations of this crime. Um, and and uh, mobs will be whipped up and take punishment to their own hands in some cases. In other cases, the government will actually enforce these and punish people and bring charges. Uh, the real threat here is against the freedom to choose one's own faith. And this is something that is inconsistent with how we understand religious freedom as Christians and in the United States. And, and thankfully, we have allies across the lines of, of some different faiths, as we've been hearing, to fight for religious freedom and the ability to choose one's faith. But it's important for us to understand, you know, we don't deal with these laws here in the U.S., but they're a major threat to religious freedom around the world. So, Ariel, when you look at what's taken place in Sudan, where the repeal of the apostasy law we've got, as I mentioned, about a dozen and a half other countries, what would it take to see other countries begin to move in a similar direction? Well, as you know, Tony, this is a really rare and impressive move on behalf of Sudan. Sudan is the only Muslim-majority country to repeal an apostasy or blasphemy law within the last two years. And for years, Sudan has topped a list of the world's worst violators of religious freedom. So this is a really encouraging move. Um, it should be encouraging to us as international religious freedom advocates that countries can change, that this is a huge monumental step for Sudan, and this can happen in other countries where these laws are posing a threat to religious liberty. You know, Travis, uh, I mentioned at the top of the program, and in fact, uh, Congressman Wolf and I were discussing it briefly, how when you look at countries that have religious freedom, they have other freedoms, uh, including economic freedoms. And given the uh, situation in Sudan where, you know, they, they continue to be kind of on the bubble economically, um, that if, if you begin to see greater freedom and economic prosperity, that actually can help uh, other countries take a note, uh, take note of this and say, you know what, hey, if, if religious freedom uh, does lead to these other uh, freedoms and greater prosperity and greater stability, maybe it's something we should think about. It is. Um, this is an undertold story, the link between religious freedom and economic growth and national security. Uh, we've done some work on this. There's some scholars who've looked at this issue. Uh, there's been a linkage that uh, has been noted, as, as um, Mr. Wolf pointed out, between um, countries that are free and their support for religious liberty and their um, uh, refusal to go to war with, with one another, the promotion of peace and lack of armed conflict. So this is an argument that needs to be spread around the world, you know, going uh, to the point of apostasy's laws that we are discussing here. And uh, as Ariel noted, uh, Sudan has repealed it. That's an encouraging sign. This it can be an encouragement to other regimes that have these laws in place. Um, Iran uses these laws and the threats uh, the, behind the ideology of the law to deter uh, uh, conversions and deter those freely choosing their faith. They see it as a national security threat. But this only fuels instability, uh, violence, and um, and the type of tenuous uh, potential conflicts that that we've alluded to. And and so I am I'm encouraged by Sudan's move. I think you know we should be utilizing these developments to encourage other other nations to follow suit. Ariel's been leading um, our reassessment of the research we have in this paper 
and our report on apostasy, blasphemy, and anti-conversion laws. And we hope to have that finalized soon to be able to have a new updated uh, lay of the land landscape of where these laws are in place to show positive trends that have taken place and encourage other nations to um, to follow likewise. You're listening to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Glad to have you with us. Uh, my guest in this final segment, Travis Weber, uh, Vice President of Policy and Government Affairs here at the Family Research Council, and uh, Ariel Del Turco, who is the Assistant Director of the Center for Religious Liberty here at the Family Research Council. What next steps does Sudan need to take as it pertains to bolstering religious freedom in that country for all Sudanese? Tony, I, I think, um, you know, obviously... The repeal of the law is significant, but the law and and the tools the government may use are only one part of this. As we've noted, there can be cultural hostility to religious freedom. We see that at home, and we see it around the world, too. Significant ways, threats to life and limb in Pakistan, elsewhere around the world. Uh, the, the Sudanese authorities should be encouraged to continue to promote the ideal of religious freedom and understanding of religious freedom in civil society, train um, the the power holders in the culture, the institutions, educators, lawyers, government officials on how to think about religious freedom and how to promote and how to entrench it. So Sudan has a backstop and a bulwark uh, for religious freedom, prevents any slide any sliding back um, in the years ahead. So when we look at these other countries, as I mentioned, I think there's 17 other countries that have uh, apostasy laws. Of course, you mentioned uh, Iran. Um, but are there any that we might see some promising developments taking place right now that would suggest that, A, either the people, like they did in Sudan, you know, rise up against the an Islamist regime, or, or B, that we just see natural forces taking place where there may be um, some changes afoot when it comes to uh, religious freedom in those countries? Tony, I think you know the lay of the land. Unfortunately, is is rather dim in in many in many of these countries. I'm looking at our list of countries with apostasy laws right now. I, I do think um, you know Egypt. There are actors who want to promote religious freedom. There are other actors who do not want to promote religious freedom. So we just need to encourage uh, the allies we have there on religious freedom to continue to to promote it. Iraq has has such a law. Uh, obviously, Iraq has seen a lot of turmoil. There could be opportunity, though, to emerge from that turmoil with um, a positive religious freedom development. And I think also in Jordan, um, Kuwait and uh, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, those are countries which we could see positive movement on. The UAE has taken some positive steps on religious freedom. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, though, in, in the years ahead. I mean, basically, the, the way the apostasy laws are, are utilized is primarily to keep people from um, changing their faith, which is a part of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And when it comes to religious freedom, it's the ability to not only have a faith, but to change your faith or to have no faith at all. And that is where these are being uh, utilized. Uh, In fact, Miriam made reference to this. You know, she didn't switch her faith. She was a Christian. She was born a Christian. But they accused her of of uh, changing her faith from uh, Islam to Christianity, and therefore she was charged with and convicted of apostasy. So it's really, it's ca- it, it keeps people from 
uh, converting from being Muslim to Christian in most of these 17 countries. That, that's, that's absolutely right. You know, and that's one uh, obstacle to the principle of religious freedom, which we hold to, which is the ability to choose one's faith and live out one's faith fully. Uh, the choose implies the ability to change one's faith. Uh, if you can't change it, then you're not free to choose it. And, um, you know, you must therefore be able to live it out in the public square and free, freely sharing it, speaking about it. In many of these countries, um, it's a, there's an interesting dynamic which we in the United States do not have uh, so much, and that is uh, an acceptance of some elements of different faiths, for instance, Christianity, as long as those faiths do not outwardly express themselves in a sharing and a, an evangelizing manner that would result in conversions possibly from Islam or any other faith. I mean, the principle is, is freedom to choose as you, as, as you see fit. So... Uh, I think you've you've put put your finger on on the issue here, um, because of our principles on religious freedom, we see the apostasy laws as an obstacle. To this, along with other obstacles, blasphemy laws, anti-conversion laws, which we have focused on in our publication and forthcoming research as well. And so, uh, you know, these are issues that we here in the United States need to continue to point out and advocate uh, in order to have freedom of religion for all around the world. Let's uh, take, we, we just got a few minutes left, and I, I, I want to um, address a couple of issues before we uh, run out of time. One being, I, I, and I, I kind of address this at the top of the program, but but I want to, uh, again, uh, focus on it for just a moment, and that is the issue of why should we be concerned about this? Why, as Christians in America, should we really care about spending our time, our energy, and our resources in promoting religious freedom in places like uh, Africa and the Middle East? Well, Tony, our Christian faith compels us to care for the religious freedom of other groups, and especially for Christians as well. God gives us the choice to follow him, and because of that, we are supposed to support that choice for everyone else. And as you were talking about with uh, Frank Wolf at the beginning of the program, there are practical benefits to promoting religious freedom abroad as well. No country both respects religious freedom and poses a national security threat to the United States right now. And uh, Frank Wolf touched on economics as well. It's the same conditions that are required for religious freedom, limited government, rule of law, freedom of association. These things are also required to promote economic growth as well. So these things go hand in hand, and there are a lot of benefits for the U.S. investing in promoting international religious freedom in our foreign policy. So that leads uh, to my next question is, okay, so there's there's a rationale, there's a reason that we should be concerned and we should care about this issue. But then what can we do? What can, what can churches do? What can individual Christians do as uh, they become more aware of the importance of this and the conditions around the world? And Tony, I think the key there is um, for, for those here to be, to be informed first and that information leading to prayer for religious freedom and for the persecuted, and uh, that being followed by government engagement. When our elected leaders know that we care about religious freedom, and that's the issue on our minds, that's the issue on which we're going to make decisions at, in the voting booth, um, that's the issue then that elected leaders are going to pay attention to and make sure it's addressed. So we have that freedom here to act on 
on on what we believe, live out our faith as it concerns our political activism on religious freedom. Uh, I think you know that's a chore and a task for all Americans, but it's a noble one because we naturally want to help those who cannot help themselves, who are in need of a hand, uh, in, in need of a lift up from being lifted up from their oppression and their their um, their situations around the world where they you know governments have their feet the the feet of the government on the necks of the religiously persecuted around the world, and it's our noble chore and noble task to be able to to come to their aid. And there are tangible outcomes uh, as as Christians pray, as Christians advocate, as we saw in the case of Miriam Ibrahim, who was on the program earlier. Had it not been for the intense focus of of Christians and churches, and of course I, I could also throw in uh, um, uh, Pastor Andrew Brunson, uh, another example of that. As as Christians and churches focused, they prayed. Uh, they advocated the government took action. And so it, it, it clearly makes a difference in the lives of those individuals who are being persecuted, imprisoned. But it also has a, a an effect globally as the world takes note that America has placed a high priority on religious freedom. Tony, it absolutely does. Uh, you mentioned the case of Pastor Andrew Brunson. Uh, that was due... That was resolved due to due to attention on the situation, much prayer, uh, prolonged attention, a practical uh, steps taken to help him, but ultimately due to actions taken by the Trump administration to sanction high-level Turkish officials under a Treasury Department exe- uh, executive authority that uh, was 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 proceeding on the authority of the the Global Magnitsky Act, a statute that Congress had passed, that sanctioned put the herd on Turkey, and they wanted to get out from under it, yeah. and ultimately led to the release of Pastor Brunson. This is the kind of sustained action we need on these cases around the world. Well, Travis, Ariel, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 